Friendly. It's a great place. It's good weather. You're listening to ABC Radio Brisbane and Queensland. Queensland! And we've still got that laid-back atmosphere. Hey, I'm Ashwin, filling in for Emma Griffiths this morning. Don't cry over spilt milk. Have the time of your life. Hit the nail on the head. These are all examples of idioms, if you're wondering. We make these... We use these to make our conversation sound fun or to make what we're talking about a little easier to understand. But imagine if there was a language that didn't use idioms or even jokes. Roly Sussex is going to be talking to you about that in just a moment. But first, Roly, you've got something else you'd like to introduce us to. I do. Pickle forks, which have been in the news over aeroplanes and Boeing. Now, the, the pickle fork is named because it's, it's a, a long sort of spa thing with two prongs bit they're very large prongs mind you and they go around the fuselage which by the way is from a french word meaning to turn into a spindle okay. right. that's just by the by and the pickle forks help to damp the twists and bends and things that are applied to the wings as the aircraft aircraft goes along you know um apparently there's a there is a spa underneath you know a great big sort of bracing thing which holds the wings there but these are part of the damping mechanism and it's called a pickle fork just because of the shape and uh, you know they could have a i don't know a, a bracing spa damper or something like that pickle fork sounds much nicer we don't often use food metaphors when we want to, we want to reassure people of engineering safety with one exception that i came across which is a wishbone now, on, on a car, particularly older cars, I think, you used to have a wishbone, and this is a piece of metal which splits in two and helps to hold the wheel and the suspension in place. Okay, so that wishbone, pickle fork, we're all, we are very gastronomic yes. in, this, in this little bit of engineering. Um, I've, I have absolutely no knowledge about what's safe and what's not, so I won't say anything about it. But, uh, you know, if your life depends on the pickle fork and the pickle fork is in good shape or whatever, yeah. I don't know. Uh, but certainly I've been driving cars with wishbones for many, many years. Yes, um, but would you drive a car with a dessert spoon? Or Are there certain phrases that would turn you off the safety of a piece of engineering? A meat grinder? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but definitely not. I'm sure that's out there. Have you got a question for Rolly about anything to do with language? Before he introduces this neutral, idiom-free language to us, the number to call is 1300 612. 612. Or you can text 0467 612. Rolly, tell us about this idiom-free, idiom-free language. language. Yeah. This actually fits in with something that I have to remind myself every time I go outside Australia. And I don't... I can't say the other side of the black stump because nobody else has got one. Hmm. In America, it's out in the boonies, um, which is a different story entirely. And that's an idiom which we know, and we don't even think about it because it's part of our everyday language. Now, there was a gentleman, a Frenchman called Jean-Paul Nerrière, and in 2004, he was um, a very senior executive with IBM, and he realized that people around the world were making do in English with a kind of cut-down English, but it wasn't always the same cut-down English. Lots of misunderstandings. So he thought, why can't we regularize this in some reasonable way so that everybody can communicate? Now, for a Frenchman to do this was a bit like letting the side down. You know, the Frenchmen are meant to be going into bat for the French language, not for English. But he developed a thing called Globish, which is global English. 
and it has 1,500 core words. And it's really interesting because the words are defined in terms of other, in other globish words, as it were, and you can say an astonishing amount with globish words. How did he choose these 1,500 words? I think he looked at what was... uh, Common, necessary, and in particular part of business speak and business negotiations because he was, he was in the, the top end of IBM. Now, the rules are standard English grammar, so you're not allowed to have any, any oddities like dove versus dived. Um, no jokes, as you said, because jokes, he said, I cannot understand the jokes of my English colleagues. Maybe this is just a French cultural <laughs> thing. But also no idioms, so you can't push up daisies. Now, to someone from overseas, pushing up the daisies sounds as if you're under the ground, sort of helping the daisies rise up, whereas, in fact, of course, it means to be dead. Um, No winning hands down, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That was an easy way of winning on a horse when your horse is so far in front, the jockey doesn't have to urge the horse forward. You just drop your hands. The horse runs on and wins anyhow. Or um, being over the moon, meaning very pleased and delighted, you know, but literally over the moon it sounds astronomical and a little bit odd so no jokes no idioms and it is a a code for business communication i think it would possibly be a little dull because it would be without the 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 play of english that we are used to in this language this country and uh, nerier says this is correct english without the english culture now that's an english uh, interesting claim because can you have a language without culture? The words have a certain order that prioritizes subjects over objects. It's yes. embedded, isn't it, into the language? Well, that's, that's embedded, and I think that's part of what he calls standard English grammar. But words do have cultural values of various kinds. I mean, for example, the word red used to be the color of communism. But in China, it's also a good luck color, and that's why so many Chinese restaurants are painted red. Okay, And certain other color terms... Uh, for example, blue and green have different different cut-off points. Japanese has both blue and green, but the cut-off point is such that traffic lights in Japan are blue rather than green. Um, and Russian doesn't have one word for blue. It has got two. Yes. It's a dark word, dark blue and a light blue. You almost need to put this language together by committee from a few different cultures to make sure everyone's on the same page. So that you have 6,900 cultures because there's 6,900 languages. Um, it seems to me, though, that, that this globish is really good for second language English speakers because they are already aware that there are certain gaps around in communication that you've got to be understanding of the other person. You're not talking about the other side of the black stump. And so I think they would more naturally make the adjustments for clear, objective, unambiguous communication, even if it's a bit flat. All right. The real problem is if you're a first language speaker of English, because you've got to learn how to cut down the code. And that doesn't come easy if your natural language is English. You need to grow up with foreign parents. Indeed. Or with foreign relatives, or in a bilingual household where, say, you go to school in one language, but you, turn in a, you talk another language at home, and that makes you aware of the differences between the two, which you did, presumably. I grew up with, with Indian parents. I mean, their English is, is fine now, but I had cousins that spoke, you know, 60, 40% English. Mm-hmm. So I would notice this. I'd sometimes meet my friends who were maybe Aussies and Kiwis that had never really had much interaction with foreigners. And when they would repeat themselves to a foreign 
students, they would use the same level of complexity, just slow down a bit. Uh -huh. uh, but as that's if, not enough. As if you slow down and that should make it easily obvious to anyone. Yeah. I mean, just talking about Indian English for a moment, it, it's a, a fascinating, uh, very large English. And shortly, I think India and China are going to be the largest English-speaking countries in the world. There's more than 300 million people learning English in yes. China anyway. It's a very cliche-filled English as well, I find, Indian English. Oh, yes. And there are some things which, which foreigners like I f didn't know. For example, this, this whole business about Lach and Craw. Yes. Lach is 100,000 and Craw is 10 million. I think it's actually the other way. Oh, is the other way around? Lach is 100,000. Well, maybe we should Google this. And Craw is 10 Lark is 100,000, that's right, and Craw is 10 million. And interestingly, China also has a term for 10 million. In other words, they've cut the numbers in a different way from we do. Um, and in Indian English, the, my favorite example is preponing. Because in our English, you can postpone something, which means you make it later. Yes. And in Indian, Indian English, you can prepone something. What does that involve? It, it makes it, 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 it's happening earlier rather than later. That's the word for bringing it forward. Mm. And That's it interesting. Is, it's very logical. It's using bits of English, which are already there, in a way which is fully consistent with the rules of English. It, but it wouldn't find a place in Globish. Yes, that's well. Indians have postpositions instead of prepositions. They do because of the structure. So maybe they're used to inverting some of these things. Maybe so, but then you get words like matrimonial. I'm going to look in the paper for the matrimonials. Yes, which are advertisements for fathers looking for spouses for their daughters. Um, and there's a whole series of, if you look in the, is it the Delhi Times? I'm not sure. I'm sure I've never looked at a matrimonial website. It Rob. does you credit. Okay. <laughs> but it might be. But there are others, you know, so-and-so was, was busy with academics for, for years. And yes. that means just academic pursuits. That's right. Not people. Right. And so Indian English often uses English words, but in a slightly shifted way. And you need to know your way around in order not to get mixed up. The one... One I think is really nice is revert. And um, please revert, meaning get back to me, yes. report back, okay? Whereas revert, in my English, means um, going back to a previous habit, possibly a bad one. You know, he reverted to a state of alcoholism. Yes. Yeah. And what's your good name? They oh, ask, that's I, Indians ask, what's your good name? Oh. What's what? your first name? Oh, right. Thank you. I didn't know that one. And. Yeah. Also, I think we were talking about it earlier. Indians, we're all, we're all categorized by a different food group. So mm -hmm. our skin colors in these matrimonial ads that you mentioned. Yes. We're wheatish. I think I'm wheatish, You're technically. Wheatish. Okay. But in Australia, it would be Vegemite or something. We all get different categories. <laughs> the wheatish is your... Okay. I think that in Australia, that might be regarded as being racially discriminatory. Or it is. But in India, it's completely it, it, normal. Standard. Wheatish. Yeah. What's, have you heard some others? That, I, I've heard straw colored. And, yes. and I read this in the, the Daily Times. I was, I was just interested one day looking at these ads for, for you no, know, my daughter is available sort of thing. If you are, you've got an Oxford, uh, Oxford education, preferably good background and reasonable amounts of money. Come and talk to me about matrimony. <laughs> They're so practical, yes. those marriage ads. Oh, yes. But anyway, Globish, of course, would have none of that. It would only be f predetermined, approved words which were part of this 1500 now globish isn't the first one and in fact a bloke called madhukar gogate who i imagine has to be indian mm. um had used the word globish about six years before but nerier came along and i think grabbed everything he patented the name and the concept with actually quite a good intention and that was that other people wouldn't get around and muck it about in other words there was 1500 in the box, that was it, and you couldn't sort of tinker with it without permission. 
So it's a way of making sure that there is a stable code. Same thing had been done by a man called I.A. Richards, who invented basic English in the 1920s. He had 2,000 words, so he needed a little bit more. But the idea that you can say pretty well everything you need to say, more or less, with a, a, a fixed set of quite restricted vocabulary, because um, th- there are all sorts of, of of weird notions about how many words English speakers have. Um, David Crystal, the English linguist, did some testing, and he found out that your passive vocabulary, if you're a, an articulate English speaker, may be 50,000. So that's quite a lot. That's a lot, yes. You know? And for someone from overseas, learning a foreign language, they, uh, they tend to assume that you need about 2,500 hours. Now, to, for for a reasonable level of competence, that's a lot, you know. And and a lot of people, you know, I've I've got twenty hours before I get on the plane to go to wherever. Right. So give me some quick quick yes. things for survival, Cambodian or something, you know. I like this idea of choosing the, just the most important words, but I think we also have to choose the most understandable accent. I went into a Seven Eleven the other day. Oh yeah. And I I said, hey, do you have any baked beans? It was an Indian from India, yeah. and he didn't understand what I was saying. I said it three times, baked beans. And I, when I looked back at it myself, I thought, wow, I really stretch out those vowels, baked yes. beans. It's a very Australian thing to stretch it out. Okay. Whereas he must have needed something more clipped, and I wasn't up to it. And how would you pronounce it in an Indianized English? Baked beans. Ah. Just more clipped. Baked okay. beans. Baked beans. Baked beans. Yeah. Ah, well, not okay. baked beans. So yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. it struggled, struggled with it. Well, Globish has got words like except. Now, you think about except, that is a very important, reasonably common word. Yes. Meaning you receive something which is given to you, all right? And it's got word like uh, advertisement, because this is business. It's got word like afraid. No, I'm afraid I can't see you this afternoon. Okay. Um, lots of prepositions like against and for and in, they've got to be there. Words like agree, okay, so that it's, it, it, if you work through the list of words, you see, hey, I can, I can say quite a lot in this thing. And they used afraid instead of scared, which sounds more appropriate for business. I'd think so too. Scared has overtones of maybe cowardice or something. I'm scared to meet you is not a polite way. To- no, no, no. You're, you're, you're a bit intimidating. Actually, I'm not sure if intimidating is there, but I would doubt it. Um, Again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to meet you would, would probably do the job. And again, if you consciously remove the emotional content of these words, you'll see that it's actually got quite an interesting role. So this is, this is the way Globish works. And um, I think the, the notion, because a lot of first language speakers of English, they go overseas and they just assume that whoever they meet is going to understand their English. And as you say, with the right kind of pronunciation. Um, those who know a bit better can wind their English back a bit to a more... Now, there is something called English as an international language, but it doesn't actually have a set vocabulary. And so you need to find a common ground with the person you're talking to. And as you say, in Indian English, your pronunciation will be different. Yeah, we'll we'll get back to that, because we've had a few callers come in, Rolly, already. Okay, right. You are listening to Rolly Sussex. If you would like to ask Rolly a question, 1300 612. Peter is in Karina. Hello, Peter. Uh, good morning. Morning. I would like to know, in, in, we have all these mathematical signs. You know, you have a plus yes. and, and, a, and a percentage. Mm-hmm. But what, what is it called uh, when you have the division sign? You know, the, 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 the dot above the line, the mm-hmm. straight line, and the dot below. Is it in a bill or something like that? 
Not that I'm aware. I'm just hmm. division sign is is no for the ordinary for the ordinary arithmetic operators. There's plus, minus, division, and multiplication. Hmm. And then there are others which you can use for indicating um, square roots and uh, squared and so on. I don't know that there's a special word, but I shall look it up for you okay. and see if there is one. Hmm. Well, this is important to me when, when you're doing crosswords. <laughs> ah, okay. They, it would have to be something like that, yes. Okay. But I, I, I don't know what it is. So. Okay, well, um, I, I don't think a beal, a beal is a, is a is a tree. I think maybe a poplar tree or something yeah, funny. It, like an aspen or whatever. That's right, yes. But yeah. I will go looking if you can ha- wait until next week. I'll see if there is a term I'd for it. I'd be happy to. I won't miss you at all. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for calling in, Peter. Jim has called in. Hello, Jim. Hello. What was your question? Uh, just two common English sayings that mm. have been abbreviated over much and they don't make any sense in their current usage. Yes. The one is the proof of the pudding is in the eating, mm. which has been shortened to the proof is in the pudding. Yes. <laughs> And the other, speed is the essence of time. Oh, yeah. It's been abbreviated to speed is of the essence. Yes. Um, the, the second one, I think, speed is of the essence, is a, an abbreviation which has been around for several hundred years and I think is probably now not felt to be losing something. On the other hand, the proof is in the pudding is definitely wrong. Um, yes. the, the, proper, the proper version is the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Correct. Uh, like sixpences that you used to bite on at Christmas and break yes. your teeth. Um, there aren't, there aren't, there aren't, well, I, actually, I, one of my older relatives had a stash of old sixpences, which mm. he kept for the Christmas pudding every year. Mm. Um, but no, you're quite right. There are some common sayings which get abbreviated, and after a while, people do forget what the original full form was. They do. Yeah. Well observed. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. Bruce is in Nanango. Hello, Bruce. Oh, Bruce, you're right there. It sounds quite yes. noisy. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Um, no, just a couple of the you talked about an idiom-free language. Mm. Um, yeah, Australia has some beautiful idioms and sayings and that. A couple of my favourites are when someone's a little bit angry, he gets as toey as a Roman sandal. Like oh that. yes, toey as yeah. a Roman sandal. I haven't heard that for a long while. Or, or uh, still in common usage. Uh, someone who thinks they're rather suave, but they're probably not. And the sarcastic comment, oh, he's as smooth as a pair of Hessian undies. <laughs> now, that one I have never heard. Where, where yeah, are you from, Bruce? I'm from the Nango, Riley. Yeah, yes. but, but originally, where, were you, where did you grow up? I grew up not far from there, in the headwaters of Brisbane River, actually, but I went to school in Brisbane for five okay. years. Okay. All right. Um, what's happened with Toey, of course, is that there, there are, there's a toe on your foot, and Toey meaning um, yeah. irritated, sensitive, something like that. So you put the two ideas together, and this as Toey as, this is a simile, and Australian English has hundreds of these things. Um, and, you know, flat out like a lizard drinking is another one. Um, mad as a cut snake, as fit as a mallee bull. And if you get on the, in the Internet and look for Australian English simile, You'll find masses of these. Um, the toey idea is, is like flat out like a lizard drinking because flat out means horizontal. It also means very busy. You put the two ideas together and apply them to a lizard and you've got something which foreigners, and you're quite right here, foreigners simply haven't a clue. You know, what on <laughs> earth are you saying? 
Look, I don't know why we have to lose it. I don't think we do. I, think I, I, I hope we don't, because it, I it's... I hope we don't either. It, yeah. I mean, it, the first time I heard his tummy as a Roman zeppelin, he fell over. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very appropriate, and it's very Australian. We love playing with language. Yes. And we also yes. like being a little bit obscure, particularly yes. if there's people from overseas. And I'm, I, it's not always too friendly, but, but it's... it's, it's, a, it's, it's it's well meant, and I think it's one of the things which makes our English yeah. very special. I don't think we should lose it, Bruce. I just think we need to use Globish when we're trying to order baked beans at a Seven <laughs> Eleven. What was the baked beans one? Oh, I just missed that. I tried to order baked beans, but this this Indian. I mean, I'm Indian as well, but I was left yeah. when I was one, and he was just moved over, and he didn't understand what I was saying. Baked beans, and I realised it's just my accent. And yeah. <laughs> I ordered a I ordered a, a, an iced coffee at Disneyland. Some years ago now, and I got a black coffee with ice in it. Yes. Oh, see, yeah, okay. you've done it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Hello, Thank, Bruce. Have Thanks for calling, Bruce. Denise is on the Sunshine Coast. Hello, Denise. Oh, oh sorry. Hang on. Who have we got? No. I'll get Denise back there. Hello, Denise. Hello. How are you both? Well, thank you. What was your question for Rolly? Look, um, the expression. I'm wondering where it came from. Um, to put the kibble wash on something. Okay, this is actually to put the kibosh on something, K-Y-B-O-S-H, um, and it means to, um, a bit like to put the moz on uh, in, in Australian English, and it, it's, it means to, um, to put an end to something. You know, you put the kibosh on it, um, we, were, we were busy negotiating a deal, he put the kibosh on it means he torpedoed the whole thing and it couldn't, couldn't go through. Like sabotage. Close. Close. Except sabotage, I think, suggests that you're doing something underhand, whereas uh -huh. kibosh is simply to make an end of the whole thing in a very decisive kind of way. K-Y-B-O-S-H, original, uh, origin unknown, according to the dictionary when I last looked. There are a lot of these things which... This one looks as if it might be Yiddish or, mm. or Hebrew or something, but we don't know. Uh -huh. My father used to use it frequently, yeah, oh, yes. and I wondered whether it was something that came from the Middle East, he served in World War Two. Yeah, it could be. Um, and again, you know, Arabic and, he and Hebrew are both Semitic languages. They're uh -huh. very, very closely related. And a lot of our um, servicemen picked up things like bint for a girl. Now, bint is Arabic for girl. You know, so it means daughter. And so, so one, someone bint so-and-so is daughter of such-and-such. They thought, brought this word back to Australia uh, as meaning just a girl. And they also brought back the word imshi, which means sort of run along, get out of here. Uh, Dad used to say Igoriella. <laughs> oh, I'll have to look that one up. <laughs> Igoriella, thank you very much. So he was, he was in the Second World War in the Middle East, yes? Um, yes. Okay. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for calling in. Yiddish is also known for its sense of humour. Oh, yes. Is there something about the language that enables that? Um, I think it's more the... the there's a, there was a very big generation of, of comedians in American, people like Bob Newhart, Shelley Berman, in the 60s and 70s, and they were all Jewish. Um, so there may be something about the Jewish sense of humour, I don't know. You're listening to Rolly Sussex, ABC Radio. If you've got a question for Rolly, 1300 612 is the number to call. Michael is in New Farm. Hello, Michael. Hello. What's, Hello. Your, what's your question for Rolly? Yes, the word like seems to be overused by oh, yes. millennials mm. and young Gen Y. Could this mm. be for fear of being judged or uh, fear of being, uh, for not recalling correctly, mm. or, um, for being politically incorrect? 
Yeah. Like in English can be a verb. Uh, he likes ice cream and it can be a preposition. Uh, my love is like a red, red rose. And I was looking at a dictionary the other day. That like, the preposition one, is the 78th most common word in English. Uh, there's a bit of trivia for you. But in young person's English, particularly American teenage speech from California, he was like uh, about to go home like, and they use it all over the place. doesn't mean anything. It's just a filler, uh, but has become very common in Australian English as well. And uh, the we will just have to wait for it to go away, I'm afraid. It's a bit like awesome. Awesome with any luck will die a natural death, but it's been lingering a long time. Yes, okay. <laughs> I, Rolly, do you think we have this anti-intellectual culture where we don't want to f sound definitive, so we, we vacillate and say like and seem um, a bit soft about our opinions? I don't think so. I mean, Australians are very, very concrete about many things. Um, but like is definitely part of poetry. I mean, simile in poetry is when you compare two things and, and try and find new ways of being expressive. And uh, it's actually got quite important functions um, in everyday speech in, in its proper use. Uh, the one that I'm talking about is, is just a, a particle which young people use all over the show and it's become a habit. It's a bit like saying yes, no at the start of an answer. doesn't mean anything and is in fact confusing. We have time for one more call. Thank you for calling in. If you have, Rolly will be back next week as usual. In the meantime, Trevor is in Townsville. Hello, Trevor. Good morning. What was your well, question? My question is uh, from the Boer War, mm. the word mafficking, mm. I understood was once used as a verb the people were mafficking in Trafalgar Square. If that's Ooh. true, when was it mortally wounded? Now, this is, is something I've not heard. The siege of, ma siege of mafficking. Yes. It was actually m normally in English mafficking. I think in, in uh, South Africa it's mafficking. Uh, and there was a battle there during the, the Boer War around yes. about 1900. Yes. As a word meaning dying or murdering, I've never heard that. But I will check it out and we'll report on that next week. Thank, right, thank thanks you. for the information. Interesting one. Yeah. Thank you for mm. that. And there's a text message, Roll. It's coming from Sherry in Warwick. The mm. proper name for the division, for the division sign, mm. is Obelus. Oh, the Obelus, yes. O Obelus. Yes, and that is, um, I think, related to the Latin, the old Latin word for a... Um, it's, it's a bit like a, a little cross. Um, it's a... a a stroke, vertical stroke, with a little little piece across it, um, and that is used in. It's in printing when you mean that someone has died, uh, but it's also used in manuscripts when you're not sure that the word's right. It may be a corrupt word or misspelt, or you no, know, someone's got it wrong, so that it doesn't actually mean division as much as uh, as, uh, as far as I'm, I'm aware. Uh, but obelus is, is definitely a, a printer's mark. Rather special one, actually. Do you have a word of the day for us? I do indeed. This one is a little bit obscure, but if you get it, shame on you. Here we go. Scrod, S-C-R-O-D, is a famous Massachusetts fish dish, and it means something like young halibut or young cod. Anyway, a business from the U businessman from the UK goes to Boston, and he asks the cabbie, whether there are any places around where he can get scrod. And the cabbie says, yes, sir, but I, it's a long time since I heard the past participle used like that. <laughs> I like that. I was just saying, it sounds dirty without being dirty. Not at all. No, that's right. Thank you, Rolly Sussex. The ABC's Word Wizard. The Lord of Language. A word in your ear with Professor Rolly Sussex.